Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 130 of Inside Quizzing. The podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 130, Scott and I have absolutely no pre-planned notes whatsoever, but Scott has an idea that he's going to talk about, and we're just going to riff on this idea and maybe others and just kind of see where the podcast goes. I genuinely have no idea what this idea is, and um, I think that's it. So (laughs) Scott, take it away. All right. So my idea is I have recently been involved with some... collegiate basketball goings on and one of the structures is 10 different regional committees who are all deciding the same thing but within each of their geographic regions and they advise a national committee and the national committee's job is to make final decisions but also make sure each of the 10 regional committees are consistent are making decisions consistent with one another and one thing that the national committee is doing at least this year and potentially in the past is they are tracking decisions that have been made so that they can go back and look at them and ensure both consistency and are we like what are what underlying rule or policy are we using to justify the decision that we've made? And it reminded me of, do you know what architectural decision records are in the, the software little, development world? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, we decided to use this database versus this other one. We're going to make an entry in our arch- architectural decision record of why we made this decision in case we want to refer to it in the future when we want to use a non-relational database and we decided to use a relational one, we can see where our minds were at and what reasons we used to decide on a relational database because maybe those reasons are no longer valid. So it's kind of a a log of sorts that will, could be useful to you in the future. And so my question for you is, do you think there is a way to implement something similar on difficult judgment filled Quizmaster rulings. I guess in the in the H three slash CBQZ world, there is no such thing as a judge or a subjective ruling. But do you think there could be use, whether it's for protests or for rulings, to log the ones that maybe were the most murky or indecisive or something to work to have utmost consistency across all rooms and adherence to whatever the underlying rule set is. I mean, absolutely. Yes. I think that could be, I mean, we're purely talking about the age two universe here, but in the age two universe where quiz masters, not all the time, but you know, maybe once a meet, uh, maybe even twice a meet, I guess. And it tends to happen more at the higher levels rather than the, the district or, or sub district levels. But, uh, if they have, if they're faced with a difficult, uh, situation where they have to make a ruling, uh, that it, that, you know, could be more controversial or, or, or it's, it's on the fence, let's say it could go either way. Then I think, yeah, having that get recorded and discussed, um, is a really good idea. I think more than that though, it's similar to what we're doing on the rule book in, again, in a two, right. Um, the CMA rule book with the idea of whenever there's a change to the rules, you can now go back and actually see all the discussion. Well, you can see all of the online text-based discussion. There are people are going to have, you know, phone calls and in-person conversations about different topics uh, that are not going to be captured there. But theoretically, the rationale behind any sort of rule change is visible and trackable indefinitely. And so when you say like, well, why did they make that rule change? What was the, what was the reason behind it? Like you can go back and say, okay, I, I, I can, understand why they made that. I may still disagree. I may change my mind and turn to, to agreeance based on, you know, <coughs> excuse me, you know, understanding the history. That's all fine, but at least it's there. Um, was it Chesterton? I think, G, uh, uh, Chester, GK Chesterton wrote something along the lines of like, you know, before you tear down a fence that's in the way, try to understand why, uh, the, the people who built the fence, put it up in the first place. Um, and I'm, I'm completely butchering the quote. That's not anywhere close to the, 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 the reality of the quote, but yeah. So, but taking a step back and going back to your example that spawned this, how does the governance of that work? So if you've got these, you know, different organizations, sub organizations that are making, de- uh, in, uh, you know, decisions that are independent of each other, and yet they're all wanting their decisions to jive with each other, but there is no way to 
cause that governance to happen, you're really then just relying on every one of those, you said, I think 10 organizations, right? You're, you're basically relying on every single one of those organizations desiring to be in alignment with everyone else, right? Yes. So the way that the structure works is each of those 10 regional committees has about six members. And one of those, each of those six members is on the national committee. So there's overlap there. And there is communication with, I believe, within regional committees and, of course, to the national committee. And by definition and by name, the regional committees are called advisory committees. And so they are presenting an advisement. What's the word? They're presenting advice to the national committee and the national committee approves or changes and then approves what has been done by the regional committees. So it's kind of like the regional committees does 90% of the heavy lifting and then the national committee rubber stamps it, but ensures consistency among those 10 regional committees. So what would happen if a regional committee made a decision and you said like 10 of the, these orgs, right? Right. So let's say you, you, you know, one, one group makes a decision and it turns out three of the other nine are like, yep, this is a good idea. We support this. Another four are like, this is a really bad idea. And the, the remaining two are, um, noncommittal or, or they say, well, we're sort of middle of the road here. We, we don't want to cast a vote. How would they, how would they resolve that? Cause I mean, my assumption would be, you know, it would start at the regional level. The The regional entity would say, we're going to decide X. That gets implemented at the regional level. Then it goes to national. And then the national kind of gets into a weird gridlock situation. Then ultimately does that then get reverted, like force reverted if there's not a majority? Or how how does that work? Correct. So I don't know the inner workings, but what we're talking about is not new rules or anything it's ranking sports teams Mm, so each of the regional committees are in charge of ranking sports teams and whether they put you know one team five and one team six or reverse it it doesn't have immediate impact on any like day-to-day happenings within that region and because of that the national committee can say like hey you put five ahead of six but that's inconsistent with how everyone else is doing it and we want it to be consistent with how everyone else is doing it so we're going to change it we're going to swap six and five and we're going to tell you why so that you know for the future Hmm. okay interesting and i mean all of the regional organizations are cool with with the structure as it's defined yes yes and presumably this would be better than having and the, and the reason they do this is because most of the heavy lifting, like you were saying, has to be done calculationally at the regional level. So like it would be grossly less efficient to have one national committee of, say, 60 people, and it would be near impossible, let's say, to have a national committee of six doing all this work. Correct. Hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. And it is an interesting thing because the ranking of... The ranking of the teams happens via five objective data points, but the the relative weights between them are not defined. And so the 10 regional committees and the national committee collectively work out how they're going to kind of weight the five different objective data points. But because of the extreme variance in the data, there is some desire to have it be subjective and not be objectively like the weights objectively defined, which could then just be a formula applied to everything. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, There is a desire for some level of subjectivity resulting in flexibility. And it's that national committee that kind of takes on that bird's eye view to help there be a level of consistency between the regions. Um, But it's, it's a very, very interesting setup that, definitely has downsides, but also is almost impossible for anybody to design a perfect system. Yeah, that's interesting. So do you think it's a good, I mean, just, just, you know, switching around to be the inquisitor myself here for a moment. Do you think it's a good idea to have rankings be subjective like that? Or would it be not better to have them be objective? I think there's pros and cons. I think what we are dealing with is let's say PNW had 430 participating churches. That would be awesome. 
(laughs) I dream of Um, the day. And each church has a single team, but they play, they, they have meets kind of that they get to design themselves. And so it might be that these 19 churches have quiz meets within themselves, but everybody kind of knows that they are weaker, but still there are winners, right? Among those 19. And so Mm. there is a need to say like, Hey, we know you're the winner of those 19, but we know that your competition was less strong than in a different grouping of maybe 29 churches where maybe you came in third, but everybody knows that that grouping is really strong. And so maybe you're better than the number one from the weaker 19 grouping. But we can never know year to year what the specific groupings will be and what the specific strengths of those groupings would be. So we've come up with five data points that themselves are objective, but the relationship between them is left up to the, these regional committees to kind of deal with the year-to-year extreme variance in how the individual programs have aligned themselves and construct their schedule. Let me translate this into quizzing and let me know if I, I have the right mental model when I'm doing this. So let's say this is PNW from the 90s. So we have three regions. Uh, I forget exactly how many churches, but um, roughly the size PNW is right now, basically times that by three. And that was roughly what you would see in the district. So we'd have a north, south and, a, and an east uh, region. Uh, and so each of those regions was roughly the size of PNW. In that universe, we were so large that we couldn't physically fit everyone into a meet um, for all five. Likely, we didn't we didn't have enough churches that were big enough uh, to house everyone uh, all the time, unless we basically said, "Well, NSA is going to always host every meet," or Woodenville too, for that matter. Woodenville well, was Woodenville. Woodenville was big. I don't remember if it was big enough. Anyway, but there were there were just a couple of churches, a couple three churches that were big enough, and everybody else was was just not big enough physically as a facility to be able to house everybody. Um, and then from logistic wise as well, travel distances and so forth, it was just easier to to, to manage regions. So let's say let's take that universe and add a zero onto the end of all of the things that I just talked about and say, okay, well, given if you're in the north region, it is financially not reasonable for you to go to the South region or the East region to quiz. So you're going to do a hundred percent of your, or very nearly, you're going to do, let's say 98% of your quizzing within the North region. And let's say that we know that the North region is a little bit weaker than say the East region for whatever reason, right? Like, like um, we, we can look at certain stats and say like, you know, number of errors or, or accuracy levels. And we can, we can basically say, yeah, it's, it's pretty well known that the East region is, you know, 17% better uh, than the North region, let's say. Uh, And, and let's just kind of go with that. So then it's the idea of saying, well, how then do we cross select the teams from each region? Let's say we never do, we never compete together at a district level until we get to DC. And what we, instead of saying we want to take the top, let's say three uh, or the top six teams from each region and send them to DC. Well, what if we did that, then DC would have, you know, nine or 18 teams or something like that. But let's say uh, team four, let's say we're going to take the top nine, right? So the top three from each of these three regions, then team four from the East region would potentially be better than, say, teams one, two, and three, or certain, or certainly teams two and three from the North region, let's say. Um, and so is it fair to exclude team four just uh, from, from the East region purely out of geography? And maybe we say, actually, no, we want to slant it a little bit so that team four from the East region can compete at DC. So then you're like, okay, well, we have no data prior to DC to be able to make that calculation how do we make that calculation? So before I move on, is that a reasonably fair approximation of what we're talking about here? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, So then in that universe, and of course, maybe stay in the fictional, uh, you know, P&W quizzing universe here, just so I can track along with it. But give me an example of how 
we could subjectively merge these groups together? Would it be kind of like you, me, and some of the other leaders getting together and saying, we're going to look at some data that is objective, but then we're going to, you know, let's say I'm in the North uh, region and you're in the East region. So we haven't actually seen each other's quizzes, or maybe we've seen the, the stats that come out of them. But we just sort of negotiate and figure out, like, well, to what degree are we going to say the East region is stronger than the North region? How, how does that work? Right. And you have honed in on the exact subjectivity. And taking it a step further, the underlying data points might have incredibly different data in them. So let's take two hypothetical quizzers, one who averaged a, a 40 but quizzed against the known like six best programs again and again and again and again. And another quizzer who averaged an 80, but quizzed against the known six worst programs again and again and again and again. And you're left to decide like, how do we meet in the middle somewhere to make a call? Like what would the 40 quizzer average against the six worst teams? And what would the 80 quizzer average against the six hardest teams? And, and year to year, kind of those specific averages and the teams that they quizzed against, the makeups are slightly different. And so settling on a specific mathematical ratio between the two where you can come to an equality is difficult, right? So, right. But it seems to me that running it subjectively is just sort of covering over the ambiguity, right? It, it's You're not actually resolving the ambiguity. You're just sort of pretending that the ambiguity doesn't exist, right? Right. And I, th and I think that's absolutely correct. But the reason, one of the main reasons is a lot of the ambiguity exists because um, the schools participating are geographically disparate. Sure. And so there's no, there's no path to reducing the ambiguity, no feasible path, because you can't just make Washington close to Florida. Sure. But I mean, you could look at other, I mean, ultimately, even if there's no direct actual metrical mechanism for collapsing the superposition, that's actually happening at the subjective level, just in a non-repeatable way, right? Correct. Uh, based on Correct. what people are feeling. And so it's like, okay, so then ultimately there is some objective way to collapse the superposition. You just have to go through the thought process of, 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 well, how are we going to actually come up with it? And maybe it's one of those things of, you know, number of scores relative to certain criteria, and maybe it's a broken mechanism. Maybe, maybe there is no good, reasonable way to collapse the su superposition objectively. So therefore you have to find an unreasonable way of collapsing the superposition objectively. Right. Right. And I think you've hit on all the points. Another wrinkle is that there seems to be a desire to keep whatever determines the teams, the ranking, um, understandable. And so the fact that these five data points are them, each individually themselves very understandable makes the fact that we are collapsing the superposition in a somewhat – in a largely subjective and, and inconsistent, potentially inconsistent across years manner palatable where if someone could design a single statistic that resulted in what everybody wanted, but that no one could understand, that would be less desirable. So here's an interesting thing. Imagine it is 23 and a half years in the future. And I use that uh, number specifically because in 23 years is the AI singularity, um, artificial general intelligence. And so we're saying it's six months after artificial general intelligence has been, you know, released upon, you know, Skynet exists, we're all doomed. Uh, but before we realize that we're doomed, we ask the artificial general intelligence to come up with a mechanism by which it can objectively and consistently collapse the superposition. But nobody can know what it is because it's AI. Would this make everybody angry or would it make people happy that at least there's there is an objective but unknown un an unknown not understandable way of being objective and consistent i can't speak for the participants so the ones that are the recipients of the rankings um, but i would imagine that the administrators of the rankings would reject it for the fact of being unknown 
even if the outcome is more desirable. Interesting. So it is, it's an automated way, therefore requiring basically no uh, effort on the part of, of humans and, you know, very efficient in terms of cost of electrons. It is repeatable, objective, consistent, and provides you the outcome that you want. But because we can't understand it, we don't want it. I, that would be my assumption. That's very interesting. I do not comprehend that point of view. Can you, can you help me comprehend why that's a good idea? Um, this might be speaking too much, right? Um, inference wise, but I think the loss of control is not desired. Interesting. Because, because for example, in, you know, in that hypothetical that we were talking about of the PNW programs and each of them gets to kind of decide who they compete against during the year. It could be, well, it is the case that any of them can decide for any given year to drastically change um, who they compete against. And I think there's a desire to have some control to be able to flexibly respond to currently unforeseen scenarios. Interesting. Okay. And having access to the power cord of the AI is insufficient control. So the idea being that like, as long as the AI spits out acceptable objective answers, it's fine. And then the moment something goes sideways, I can pull the plug and go back to the manual way. That would still be not considered a good idea. Correct. That's very interesting. I, I, as Sting would say, I do not subscribe to this point of view. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's just a, it's a fascinating thing because there are lots of observations you can make that I think are very human observations about how committees work, about how administrators work, about how participants work. Uh, for example, one of the rankings that recently happened result had a result that people didn't like, but it was consistent with all past results. And people don't want to consider how changing how the underlying work to get the current result that we want would cause other results that we don't want, if that makes sense. So it's, right. it's kind of, um, it's very, very human to latch onto this single in the present thing that we don't like, but not realizing that to, to change it, which potentially there's the power to change it, would result in other things that we don't like. And we don't, we're not grasping in the moment that we can't have both. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 you know, I think that that's, I mean, it reminds me of a situation in PNW where we were deciding how to set the weights for constellation A and constellation B brackets. And one of the arguments being made is, was rooted in how would the quizzers feel to have their, their constellation A or constellation B scores weighted down, right? So a 90 resulted in a, an 81 or a 72 or a 63 or a 54, like less points. We're granting you less points, even though you did score a 90. And it was very, you know, like, how would these specific quizzers feel? And then all of a sudden, a different committee member was like, do we want all quizzers to be scored relative to the competition level? And it was like a, an instant unanimous yes, right? And so then this committee member continued, if that's a yes, then what we're faced with is a math problem of how to set the correct weights based on the competition level. It is nothing more than that. When, when we were going down the road of like quizzer feel and all, you know, which was a very anecdotal and individual line of reasoning and thinking. Uh, and I, it's just helpful to always go back to what is the end result that we want and how can we like, how can we best achieve it? And so in this basketball scenario that I'm talking about, we're looking at this one ranking of two teams and we didn't like the direction. But the question that we're really asking is how can we get the most directional rankings that we want across all 430 and not just these two because if we tweak something in the underlying data it will result in much you know completely different rankings for everyone and do we like the current collective world better than the past collective world right and see that's why i keep coming back to this notion of like wanting there to be an algorithm even if the algorithm is 
when I should, I should be more specific. I'm, what I'm saying is an objective algorithm, not a subjective algorithm. Cause you could make the argument, you know, a bunch of people talking about their feelings is an algorithm. It's just subjective. And it's like, okay, fair. Correct. Um, fine. So I'm saying, you know, let's, let's use an objective algorithm and the objective algorithm is just so complex that it's very difficult to understand. But the nifty thing about doing that is that it's repeatable as the data changes and you can have versions of the of the algorithm, right? You can you can split the algorithm, you can fork it and and you can say, well, there's version one and two and three and 18 and 127 and, and so forth. And the data is still collected across all the events and fed through well, theoretically, the latest version of the algorithm, but at any particular point, you could take the latest version, 118, and run the exact same data through version 12 and say, well, is 118 actually better than 12 and to what degree? And if you say like, yeah, well, there was something that happened around, you know, versions 15, 16, 17 that I thought was, you know, ultimately resulted in good things happening for the data that was there uh and now it's been reverted or has been covered over through successive iterations to the algorithm or something like that you can go back and say well was version 15 better than version 93 or something like that and you can actually run those things concurrently so i mean you can't do that in terms of experiential, you can't do that with, with subjective inputs. So one of the things that I think is useful to contemplate in terms of quizzing and optimizing quizzing is the level of entertainment, the level of fun, right? For the quizzers, obviously we want quizzing to be fun because the more fun it is, the more likely quizzers will continue to participate in it, right? So ultimately that's not our measuring stick. It's not our metric because how do you measure fun, right? Well, last meet was a seven, right? Well, okay. Well, <laughs> you, I mean, how do you, how, how do you measure the fun level? Um, and somebody would say, oh, well, you just have everybody take surveys and like, well, no, because that, again, that's, that's inconsistent meet to meet it's in it, it's there's too many other inputs right there can be a bias that shifts over time so that you can't compare something you know survey data from five years ago to today because society was more pessimistic five years ago or the inverse it was more optimistic five years ago or something like that and therefore the the, the subjective rankings that you're getting doesn't actually tell you anything um beyond a very localized scope and like okay great considering all of that then how we can't metric against fun but we can metric against number versus memorized uh and we can get a proxy for that based on scoring uh to a degree i mean there's a lot of unwinding that has to happen there but like i still i still keep coming back to this notion of like this governing thing of how do you govern choices to optimize missional outcomes when the data you're using can't be normalized across more than a few months, like let alone an entire season, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree. Hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. I'm glad we don't have to deal with this problem in quizzing. Although I would like to deal with the other problem. I, I would love to deal with the 100 and whatever you said, 160 teams or something, 400 teams uh, from PNW. <laughs> I would definitely like to have that problem to deal with. Right. Uh, and, and I think that's a nice thing about quizzing in that everything, almost everything is relative. And so it does make comparability pretty reasonable. I guess it does help that for a given district, for the most part, they compete all together and also only within themselves for the bulk of the year. And then once you show up at, say, internationals or IOC, there's nothing that you've done in the past that affects how you start because everyone's on on the same playing field. And so it it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? But I think if there was a world where 150 teams wanted to go to IOC, but they only had room for 70 and some committee had to pick which you would get these problems, right? Well, to a degree, we Is have that problem the, the right number, now. The, we, I mean, we have so? that problem with IBQ, right? And, and the, I mean, we don't have that problem right now with IOC just because we have 
we believe, um, knock on wood, we believe we can scale the event to accommodate anybody who wants to attend. That may not always be the case, right? Um, so let's kind of park that aside for a moment, but let, let's go to IBQ, right? So IBQ, districts can send as many teams as the district wants to send. The limiting factor there is not IBQ, it's cost at, to the district, right? So if a district is, um, you know, especially well off financially, they can send a whole lot more teams. Now, in practice, this doesn't happen. Uh, in practice, it's usually just, you know, a, a district will stop at two teams and that's it, right? Um, regardless of, of any financial considerations. But ultimately, let's say you have a team that is relatively poor financially, but very strong um, scholastically, I don't know, quizzelatedly. Uh, they're very they're very strong quizzers, uh, but they don't have a lot of financial backing. And then you've got another district that has tremendous financial backing, very engaged quizzers in the sense that they really want to attend IBQ, but maybe are, you know, let's say half as good as the other district. Well, the latter district there is going to be overrepresented at IBQ. And how does that work? And I mean, ultimately at IBQ, it doesn't really matter because we're basically saying, well, if you show up, every team is considered equal when they walk in the door and then it's up to your performance. And so a team from the, the, the first district I was talking about will by and large, let's say, be able to outperform a team from the second district. And so, okay, great. That's fine. But the, the issue then is more like, okay, but what if I'm the, a theoretical third place team from the stronger district that, and that district is weaker financially and can't afford to send me and my team, but a, you know, the first place team from the other district is substantially weaker than the third place team from my district and they're able to attend. And it's like, you know, is that fair? Well, I don't know. I mean, I could, I have a few I have different thoughts about it. I mean, obviously I'd like the third place team from the stronger district to be able to compete, but is it, uh, I mean, there's something to be said about having a diversity of geography as well as, you know, quality of the underlying, um, of, of the underlying participants and the, and the team quality. So yeah. How do yep. you, how do you, how do you make those determinations? And I mean, I think, I think IBQ and IOC for that matter, although we're IOC sort of punting the question, but I think IBQ has made the right call there where they basically said, Hey, it's, it's just up to the district. Um, if you can send more teams, great. If you can't, that's sad, but you know, you know, we're going to, we want to encourage as much participation as people are willing to do. Right. And I think it's hilarious that you hit on the geography. So a couple things, the scenario that we're working with in the basketball world is that there's more teams that want to compete than are, um, there is room for in a given event. So it's similar to if internationals had a limit of 25 teams, but 60 wanted to compete. And so I'm just going to pick um, Western Canada and PNW because they're the, the two closest to PNW. What if the number you, four you mean CMD? Team, no, Western Canada. Right. So you said you, the, the two that, sorry, I missed what you said. You said the two that are sorry. closest to PNW are West Can and who? Um, I'm including PNW. So just the two. Okay. Um, I'm not wanting to make a, um, a quality judgment on districts. So I'm just okay. saying okay. hypothetically, let's say the number four team from Western Canada wanted to attend internationals and internationals had to pick between the number four from Western Canada and the number two from PNW. You can see how that's a difficult call because you're, you're comparing apples and oranges unless they've competed against each other. Right. And so you have to work out some set of data to make that decision either hundred percent objectively via a formula or some amount of subjectivity. And then to take it a step further, you hit on geographic diversity. What if there was a world where the best 25 teams in the country were literally the 25 teams from Western Canada? Well, you wouldn't want that tournament, even if it is the most deserving teams, because it's not good for the entire competitive landscape of the sport. <laughs> Right, right. Um, and then, but you're needing to balance those two every single year to some degree, and I think that's where the desire to have some amount of control and flexibility and through subjectivity is desired to to give you a little bit of wiggle room 
to reach geographic missions, even if you have to tweak how you're doing it subjectively. Yeah, I get, I get the, I get the, the siren call of subjective measures here, but I'm still going to be the, the, the jerk who says, I, I think we're, we're trying to punt something that is solvable objectively just because it's hard. Um, I think it's totally possible to solve this problem objectively. I'm not suggesting it's easy though. <laughs> like, like it's definitely going to take a great deal of thought and a lot of work and you won't get it. Well, it's very unlikely we'll get it right the first iteration. So therefore there's going to have to be successive iterations of, of tweaking the algorithm to get it closer and closer to the outcome that we want. And maybe for the first few iterations we say well okay this is the algorithm but but we're not going to publish results and we're going to subjectively overrule the algorithm if we feel it's completely off base until we've had a chance to hone it in but ultimately there needs to be a a, a solidification around an algorithm that says, here's how much we actually value geography, right? How, how much do we in quizzing uh, value at something like an IOC or an IBQ? How much do we value diversity of geography? I think it's greater than zero. It's not our primary motivation. It's nowhere near close to the primary motivation, but it is some, some amount of weight that's greater than zero. So, you know, let's go back to your, your comment then it's like, well, it is something we value. It is definitely above zero and it's not the biggest thing. Therefore, now it's a math problem, right? It's it's a let's let's figure out, let's try to calculate as best we can what the number is and take the input data points that we're able to collect into this algorithm, store all of those things, iterate the algorithm and over time tweak it to make it better. But I would I would surmise that within just a couple, three, four years, or even shorter than that, if we had back data, uh, you could actually get an objective algorithm that gave everybody what they wanted. I think so too. And that's what I'm doing in a completely unofficial format in basketball is I am just running my own a hundred percent objective formulas and seeing what comes out. And, you know, I'll do one and see, well, I don't think this is the result that we want. And you know, dream up another way to change the inputs and the formula and see if it's better. And there's probably some scenario, some formula that results in what everybody wants. Um, or, or, or maybe not, right? But maybe we can approximate it in a 100% repeatable and known way rather than a way that while subjective is done consistently enough that you can almost perfectly infer what the ranking is, if that makes sense. Sure. Well, and I mean, part of the part of the beauty of coming up with an objective mechanism, even if it's so complicated that no one person can understand it fully, is that you can you're you're still always free to alter the algorithm after the fact, but you're not changing the rules based on people's feelings prior to it, like or even if it's objective. So, for example, let's say we had a very simple objective easily understandable process for calculating what the year-to-date average is for an individual quizzer from say P&W. And of course, I think we do have that. It's fairly straightforward. It's fairly uh, simple. It's fairly understandable. Um, so if we, if we run this algorithm and we see a certain set of quizzers in position one, two, three, four, up to, you know, the extent of total quizzers in P&W, we're looking at that ranking, and if we start to notice, like, golly, you know, the person who's in fifth place and the person who's in sixth and seventh, I don't think that ordering actually makes sense. And like, okay, then that is a problem with the algorithm. We need to alter the algorithm, but I'm, I'm wanting to do that after whatever the current season is, not during the season, unless there's some sort of significant egregious problem with the algorithm that's uncovered, right? The idea being that whatever the rules are for a given event, a quiz, a meet, a season, whatever it happens to be, like, I want those things not to change in the middle of the season, right? And so we, we talked about this like a couple of years ago, on this pod and elsewhere around the idea of we didn't want to see 
IBQ rules changed the night before IBQ, right? We because we were like, that's just not fair. It's not. It's not. It's not reasonable to have quizzers expect one particular outcome and have the rug pulled out from under them the night before uh, the meet. And ideally, you want to say like, we're just not going to change rules unless it's some sort of really bizarre emergency situation, which is hard to imagine, but theoretically plausible. We're not going to change rules in the middle of a season and implement those rules. We're going to consider changing them during the season. And then when the season's over, then we will implement them for the, for the following season. Right. That does make sense. Yeah. Predictability and so forth. Well, so, so here's kind of the other thing. Let's take it, let's take it from a devil's advocate perspective. Do I agree with what I just said? If there is a case that can be made demonstrably that altering the rules actually leads to more missional outcome. And what I mean by that is to say, like, our mission is to encourage the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses. Okay, so let's say somebody could demonstrate that by altering the rules in a capricious manner would result in more quizzers memorizing more verses. Now, I don't think that's true, but let's say somebody could actually demonstrate that it was true. Am I willing to forego my desire for objective rules that are uh, static and predictable because the missional outcome is improved as a result? And I think I think I am right. I think if it can be demonstrated that it's better, I, I my ultimate allegiance is to the mission not to objective rules, just, but I, I just, I, I'm still convinced objective rules are, are more promissional than, than other. So I think that organizations run best when the participants have as little cognitive overhead as possible. So that's why I think in any competition, it is healthiest, not only if there isn't any cheating, but if there is no opportunity for cheating at all, that's more healthy because it frees people from any cognitive overhead of worrying about it, specifically the participants. And I think this is similar in that if cognitively I know that there won't be change mid-season, I think it frees you up to be a more active and healthier participant, even if the mid-season change is better in all other respects, it is still something that is changing. Yeah, I think I agree. I want to zone in on something, zone in. I want to focus in on something you just said, as little cognitive overhead as possible. Now, when you're saying cognitive overhead, you're saying cognitive investment that is minimally required for participation. Well, then it's more, it's something different than that. I want to get really specific about what you mean by cognitive overhead. So it's tangent to the the thing actually happening. So it's not a core part of say quizzing, but it's, it's cognitive overhead in that people still think about it. It's not that we're requiring people to think about it. It's that you just end up doing it because we're humans and want to, I don't know what the desires are, want to be in charge, want to know the things, want to be treated fairly, want to, I think that's why, that's why in a competitive sense, making sure that there's no opportunity for cheating is so important because all people in a competition want to be treated fairly. Some might think about it all the time. Some may think about it once in a blue moon, but I think that that desire is always there. And if you know that like, Oh, all of these questions were generated by people that we know and sealed into envelopes or whatever the, you know, or in, in CBQ's case, it's literally not generated. (laughs) So like nobody can know it the information doesn't exist. And then one second before the quiz starts, you hit generate and then the questions exist. Um, Means that I'd never have to think about it. And I think that's a healthy thing for a competitive organization. So it's tangent to the thing happening. And while it's not required, it's something that everybody does to some, well, everyone will think about to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I'm in general agreement with you. I want to change the terms like I'm totally latching onto your description, your definition. I want to change the terms a little bit. I uh, see what you think of this. What if we called it extraneous cognitive load? Yeah, that works. 
So what I mean by extraneous cognitive load is basically we obviously quizzing is a cognitive sport um, and cognition is very important, right? Um, that's this, like the whole point of, of everything we're doing. Um, well, okay, not exactly, but I mean, you get my point. Like, like co cognition is, is a, is a very core, if not the core aspect of the actual competition of quizzing. If a quizzer or a coach or an official or a parent or a spectator has to add stuff to their cognitive load that is not necessary for the functioning of quizzing, um, this extraneous stuff over the top, then uh, that can be that can be a dis distractor. That said, there are exceptions to this, you know, from time to time, right? So, for example, fellowship opportunities, um, quizzers being able, this goes back to our geography thing, right? A meet is more fun for quizzers if they get to meet people from geographically diverse locations rather than meeting people that they've met, you know, from other places before. Uh, but let's say new people from further away or different locales, different cultures, that kind of thing. It, that can be a real positive thing. You could make the argument that that is extraneous cognitive load. The social interaction stuff is extraneous cognitive load, but there is a net value that comes out of that extraneous effort uh, that adds to the missional outcome of the program, right? Yeah, and I I wouldn't really call that extraneous cognitive load. It's, ex I mean... May, the word extraneous is is questionable. I mean, it's cognitive load. Um, is it extraneous in the sense of the actual competition? Yeah, but is it extraneous in terms of maximizing or optimizing missional outcome? No. Uh, so maybe maybe we and say extraneous to the missional outcome cognitive load. Sure, right? Because I don't I don't view the competition to be a hundred percent of the quizzing event. Sure. Yeah, certainly not. So then interestingly enough, um, just because I want to be, you know, that guy, um, I wonder, and I'm not going to answer the question, but I wonder what kind of non-missional extraneous cognitive load exists in modern Christian churches. I mean, probably, a t probably a ton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure there is a ton. I mean, as a, as a, as a, former senior pastor of, of, you know, churches, I, um, there's definitely, there's some definitely non-missional extraneous cognitive load that happens. Um, you know, some churches will have, uh, I don't know, clicks. Is that still a word? Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm getting older at the same rate you are Griffin. So I, I'm not sure I can answer how relevant the word clicks is. <laughs> yeah. I have more experience aging than you do. Um, so it's <laughs> that, but, no, I, um, but I, yeah, I'm I mean, sure. I'm sure there are performative aspects of religion and attending church and judgment aspects that are, that would be considered, um, what is it? Extraneous cognitive load unrelated to whatever the core is. Yeah. Non-missional I mean, at best. And some, in some cases, anti-missional. Sure. But in the, in the quizzing sense, you can come up with lots of things that would be extraneous cognitive load, but have almost no impact, right? Like, Oh, the, the meat registration for meat five went up by a dollar. Or the weight for Meet 5 is not 25%, it's 26%, and we took 1% from district champs. Like, the, these have z almost zero impact on people, but it's still, like, a change that cognitively you have to deal with. Right. And then you're, it's in your head that these sorts of things can and will happen. And whether or not they have a significant impact to you is almost irrelevant to the amount of the cognitive load that they have. Right. And that's actually a really, really good point because you're talking about an algorithm of algorithms, right? So the alteration of say 25% weighting to meet five versus 26, it's a minimal thing. And the cost of that is not the, is, is not zero, right? So we think of, we think of the, let's say there is some sort of non-zero value to going from 25 to 26% for some hypothetical right. reason that escapes my ability to imagine right now, but let's say there, there was one, there is a change cost, even though the change cost is incredibly tiny, the change cost is non-zero. And so the question then becomes, is that non-zero change cost less than the net value that the change is going to bring if we do that change now versus waiting until the end of the season. But not just that. The more 
entropy that happens, the more people have to be mentally prepared for it in the future. That's very true. Yeah. And I think that's almost the bigger one, right? It's like, oh, this meet in a week, it's actually at a different church that's a half block away. Well, like not a change, right? But now you're you're ready for things to be like more of these changes or potentially it's four blocks away, you know, two years in the future. Or, um, and then it just adds to what is in the back, dancing around in the back of your head when it's really not part of the event. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, but the idea, the, the, when small changes can occur without notice, you become, you have a heightened sense of the cost. No, that's not even true. I'm trying to describe, I'm trying to describe exactly what you said, but in a much less eloquent way. And I'm succeeding because I'm not being eloquent. Um, Past changes cause you to expect future changes, which then cause you to invest effort that wouldn't be there if there was consistency. Yeah, totally. Like, I think how much people enjoy a new movie is very related to whether they're expecting to enjoy it or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it's the same here, right? If you have no expectations that anything's going to change, regardless of the impact, then you just don't, you don't think about it. And it it is way less tiring. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, anything else you want to dig into or have we riffed? I think we've riffed sufficiently. We have riffed. All right. So that, that'll be the episode title riff. Uh, <laughs> I wonder where that's even from. I'm sure that there's some sort of epistemology of the word there that, uh, I, th- I think it's musical from guitar solos, right? Yeah. Right. But where did that, where did that come from? Guitar riff, guitar riff. Or jazz riffing. I'm sure it came out of jazz. Or if it didn't come out of jazz, certainly jazz popularized it. Oh, this is funny. Um, what, where, oh, I missed it. The etymology of the term is not clearly known. Ooh. So one could say that the, uh, the, 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 the origin of the term is subjective. Right. Some sources explain riff as an abbreviation for rhythmic figure or an abbreviation for refrain because hmm. a riff is a repeated chord progression or a refrain in music. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. But it sounds like nobody knows for sure. Feels very jazzy to me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, and on that bomb, uh, on that bombshell, uh, we will call this episode to a close. I want to remind everybody that we would love to hear from you, especially if you disagree with anything that we said, uh, on this or any other episode of the pod, please email us at IQ at CBQZ.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at inside quizzing, and you can even chat with us in kind of almost sort of near real time on the Bible quizzing Slack forum. And with that said, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. Thank you to all of our listeners and thank you to Griffin. Griffin.